Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's RAI that examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. The home of John and Margaret Bryant, the home they've always dreamed of, the happiest investment they have ever made. At last, the Bryants have all the space they need. Big floor-to-ceiling closets for each member of the family. Large, comfortable bedrooms. The American Dream. The phrase, if not the idea, was first coined, or at least popularised, in 1931 in a book by a popular historian called James Truslow Adams. It was that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, Adams wrote. This was not just a dream of material wealth, he emphasised, of motor cars and high wages merely, but also of equal opportunity, of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature of which they are innately capable. Writing in the depths of the Great Depression, Adams was not, of course, saying that this was the American reality. But it was the dream to which America as a nation remained, he thought, uniquely, exceptionally committed. In the long economic boom that followed the Second World War, Americans moved to the suburbs, bought family homes and cars and TVs and washing machines, and the high American standard of living was the best argument for capitalism in the Cold War. The American dream may have implied equality, but ideally it was also about the acquisition of a Buick convertible. But that was then. Today, a majority of the middle class can't look their children in the eye. They don't believe they can say it's going to be okay. They don't believe that their child will do as well as they did. Nowadays, both Republicans and Democrats like to talk about the plight of what they call the middle class, a term in American politics that conjures an idea of middle America, of ordinary hard-working families who can no longer assume that their hard work will get them ahead. So, has the American dream died? The middle class in the United States is fragile. Um, and the fragility of the middle class is really the story of the last 40 years. Jacob Hacker is professor of political science at Yale and author of the book The Great Risk Shift. Back in 2010, he developed something that he called the Economic Security Index, a measure of the share of Americans who experience really large drops in income from one year to the next or who experience really large increases in out-of-pocket medical expenses and who don't have enough savings to deal with those shocks. He likened the experience to being hit by a hurricane. You can prepare for a hurricane. Uh, you can shore up the, the home. Um, you can make sure that you've got you know, an adequate supply of water and you know how to get out if you need to get out. But you can't control that hurricane. And economic shocks occur... To, to people who prepare well, as well as those who don't prepare well. And we know that Americans feel less secure uh, and in many respects are less secure against major economic shocks. And that's partly because wages and incomes haven't risen very much for the middle class. And it's partly because the cost of the things that provide a middle class life, like housing and healthcare and education, have gone up a lot faster than those stagnant incomes. But there's another way to think about the middle class, um, there's another way to think about the American dream. And that's a, to think about income mobility. 
And for generations, I think the measure that most Americans had of economic success was whether their kids could have a better life than they did. And that meant many things, but it meant sort of at a minimum that when their kids grew up, uh, that they would have a higher income than their parents did. And for for many, many years, uh, as the American economy grew dramatically in the 20th century, uh, that was true. Um, the economist Raj Chetty has done perhaps the best work on this. And he's looked at what we would call absolute intergenerational mobility. And that's basically the uh, mobility from one generation to the next. And it's absolute in the sense that we're interested in simply does the second generation have a higher income than the first generation? And it's a, it's actually really hard to study this because you have to look at households over very long spans of time. You have to track the children of parents and look at them growing up uh, and becoming parents, perhaps themselves. And Chetty has done this, Raj Chetty, the economist. And what he's found is that for children growing up uh, around the 1950s and 60s, so born around 1940, uh, they had essentially 100% chance of having a higher income than their parents did when they were fully grown. And if you look forward to children who were born in 1980, so growing up in the 1980s and 1990s and becoming parents or heads of households, perhaps uh, in the 2010 period, that that latter generation had only about a 50% chance of having a higher income than their parents did. And so that's a huge change, right? And what Chetty has shown is that the real reason for it is growing inequality. As more and more income went to the top of the income distribution, middle-class families found that they had a much lower chance of upward income mobility. So it really suggests that the, the inequality and insecurity and income mobility are all tied up with one another. And that the reason that the middle class in the United States is insecure is that incomes have not risen fast enough uh, relative to the cost of living or um, relative to those at the top to ensure that middle class families in the United States have uh, a good guarantee of economic security and a good guarantee of, of intergenerational absolute upward mobility. Housing and education are two areas in particular which are now vastly more expensive for today's young people than was the case for their parents or grandparents. In both, there used to be forms of common protection, public subsidies, and in effect, a sharing of risk, which made going to college or buying a home a realistic expectation, even for the mass of people with no family capital behind them. In Jacob Hacker's terms, that risk has now been privatised, passed from the public realm back to the individual. So with, with housing, the form of common protection was basically the low interest federally guaranteed mortgage. Um, and, uh, and that was coupled with tax breaks for mortgage interest that meant that it was pretty uh, affordable to buy a home in the mid 20th century. Housing prices were, of course, a lot lower. And we should be careful because many um, black families uh, were unable to get access to the housing market. But for for white middle class families, buying a home and building up the equity in a home, which for most families is their number one source of equity, was really relatively easy compared with what would happen. But by the 1990s, 2000s, um, you saw these much more exotic 
uh, options emerging, you know, uh, no, no, no uh, income, no question kind of loans uh, with very high interest rates, interest rates that would balloon in the future. Some of these were subprime loans. Others were not. Um, they were actually offered in the regular market, but they still had these crazy features. And this very complex and risky mortgage market enticed a lot of people to make bad bets. And it also encouraged this massive amount of speculation. And so what we saw was this really strange world in which we saw homeownership rates rise, but actually Americans taking on far more debt, uh, including housing debt. And the reason was because people were basically being encouraged to take on risky housing loans, sometimes just to pull out the equity in their home to, do, to spend uh, on other things. And given the strains on the middle class, that was a pretty attractive uh, opportunity, um, but it was a very dangerous situation. So housing went from being the sort of source of the American dream to, in 2008, the source of the American uh, economic nightmare. And so subprime is, in theory, supposed to describe the, uh, the credit profile of the borrower, not necessarily the loan product itself. Uh, but we know um, at the high point of the subprime mortgage crisis, 05, 06, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, that the average a subprime borrower was actually eligible for a prime loan. Devin Fergus is the Arva E. Strickland Distinguished Professor of History, Black Studies and Public Affairs at the University of Missouri and author of Land of the Fee. In it, he traces the massive expansion of credit since 1980. Increasingly, Americans wanting to buy a car, a home or get a college degree have been compelled to rely on loans instead of wages and public grants. It's a debt trap that separates the many from the few who have easy access to parental capital. I think one of the great stories is that um, uh, because subprime mortgages are so lucrative and profitable, uh, they uh, these mortgage products would sort of, uh, if I could use the language of, of, of quarantine, would escape the quarantine. Somehow these products were supposed to be quarantined to a small segment of society, uh, but now they're marketed, as I mentioned before, uh, to even average uh, borrowers. Uh, and so so I think that's one critical thing, that these things are now become sort of widespread. And they become widespread because of the rise of secondary mortgage market. The secondary mortgage market really took off in the late 1990s and 2000s, but its origins went back to a law passed under the Carter administration in 1980, known as DIDMA, the Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act. And this law is what it does is it's it's designed to enable lenders to charge more interest rates. Uh, the reason that um, President Carter and Congress, as as well as uh, Carter's uh, Treasury Secretary, embrace DITMA is because they said it's going to increase the savings for the average account holder, right? So this is how it's marketed and explained to the American people. So it's going to increase the amount of credit available. For ordinary Americans. That's the idea. And this is why it says a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. in office exactly, in 1980, yes. and a Democratic Congress precisely. That, that passes this piece yes. of legislation in 1980 that, that in your story, mm-hmm. is the thing that opens the door mm-hmm. to these subprime mortgages, which, which we can think of as kind of suboptimal Mm-hmm. financial products from the point of view of the of the lender. People end up, the bottom line is people are paying more on mm-hmm. a subprime mortgage for the same uh, amount of credit as as they would be if they were on a different uh, financial product. Pre- precisely. The argument is that because 
lenders are now able to charge more in interest rates, that that would automatically flow to the savings accounts of account holders, right? Because these are primarily um, um, depository institutions, savings and loan institutions in many ways, which are lending this. And so, so the reasons that say the Great Panthers, uh, a group of the 1970s of senior citizens, actually embraced financial deregulation is because it's explained to them uh, that it would have put more money into their savings accounts as account holders, right? This is a classic case of unintended consequences. The motivation of President Carter and the Democrats in Congress who passed this act in 1980 was quite different from how they, uh, from from how things turned out over the following decades. Precisely, precisely. Now, this is a very basic question, but I, I, what I'm trying to understand is why would somebody take a subprime mortgage if they were, as you've said earlier, if they were eligible for a, a proper one? Sure. This gets back to what social scientists call asymmetry of information. It's fancy language for, and you're a professor, right? As professors, we have students, and we know that we can withhold information from students and we can shape narratives for students, right, to, to make things seem more attractive than others. And so, you sure you want to say that in a so, podcast, Devin? You know, you you, you just admitted you're you're withholding information from students in order to shape. Isn't this isn't this what isn't this what the right wing always fear is going on in American universities? You liberal professors are holding stuff back. Anyway, sorry, you go on. Yes, yes, so, yes it's true. I mean, so it's possible. So, um, so yes, yeah, so the subprime mortgage. The, the features of it include various features, which come in really with the second major act, which is passes in 1982, the Garn St. Germain Act. And this second major act brings into play a, a lot of uh, creative mortgage instruments. And when I say bring it to play, they exist, uh, but they don't exist on the national mortgage market. They exist in pockets. Uh, and in these pockets, we, we see in these, these individual pockets how problematic these, these um, mortgage instruments can be. And one problematic thing is something called a, a balloon payment. A balloon payment says, we'll keep your payments low at the beginning and then have to give you a balloon payment, a large payment at the very end. And so a balloon payment might to some prime borrower might, if pitched properly, pitched in a particular way by a subprime lender, might seem attractive. There are various creative ways that mortgage lenders are able to sort of market and explain a product that might seem enticing. And again, these mortgage lenders are not fiduciaries. They don't have the interests of their borrowers at heart. Precisely. Precisely. That's, that's not the primary interest. Yeah. Jacob. The story of the United States' rising insecurity is in part a story of this huge vacuum that was filled by um, a large number of unsavory players, right? The vacuum was the sort of failure to provide broad protections for workers. And it was filled by this whole series of kind of short-term uh, solutions to deal with economic risk. Um, some of these uh, are more troubling than others. You know, it's, you know, if you go to a um, web website that's designed to raise funds, um, say GoFundMe, you'll find that a, a huge amount of the GoFundMe campaigns are around paying basic health costs, right? In no other country are you going to see that kind of behavior because in other countries you have good basic health protection. Um, but here in the United States, people are pleading with um, their proverbial neighbors to pay for their uh, medical expenses because they can't on their own. In the education sector, the huge change is that 
while a generation or two ago, most Americans didn't expect to go to college, today's young Americans really need to go to college if they want to have a middle-class life, or at least a shot at it. And so in a sense, a college education and a college degree in particular has become what a high school education and high school degree were in the 50s and 60s. And you would think we would treat college a little bit like high school, that is, as a public good, something that uh, the public sector would help provide. But the public sector does help with education, but its support for education in the United States for higher education has been dramatically declining. Um, this has occurred most dramatically at the state level, where we used to have a very vibrant publicly funded university system that essentially allowed state residents to go to college for free. Uh, and today, that system no longer exists. We have lots of public universities, but they're very costly, even for state residents. The other way in which we've seen a decline of American public support for higher education is the decline of Pell Grants. Pell Grants are the main grant for um, for less uh, affluent students. And if you looked in the 60s and 70s, uh, Pell Grant was covering essentially all of tuition and room and board uh, uh, it was covering as much as 80% in public universities and around 50 to 60% in private universities. Today, of course, university costs and cost of living for, for being at uh, college have gone up uh, dramatically, yet Pell Grants have ceased to provide the kind of secure guarantee they once did, and they cover now something like 30 to 40% of the costs of going uh, to college. So tuition costs are rising, wages are flatlining, so there's obviously a bigger gap there. And in addition, you've got a smaller percentage of the college population who are eligible for these direct grants from the federal government, which are called Pell Grants, which is what you were referring to there. So there are more people needing student loans, higher loan total needed because of rising tuition and their capacity to pay it back or their parents' capacity to subsidize them or other sources of funding to, to, to support them are decreasing. So you've got, a, you've got an increasing gap there and a rising um, amount of of of, of um, student loans circulating in the system as a result, um, and and into this gap in the United States, cut step the financial institutions. Precisely, and and so in uh, these financial institutions, which were originally quite skittish, actually about uh, financing college students, and if you, um, and it makes sense. I mean. If you have a 17, 18 year old who has no job history, no credit history, and I have a nine year old, and my nine year old says, okay, give me $15,000 and I'll pay you back in four years, right? <laughs> like, give me, I mean, the average student loan now is about $30,000. Give me $30,000 and I'll pay you back in four years. You have no credit history, no job history. So it's quite understandable uh, the hesitancy that financial institutions have in, in, under, in, in, in financing. A student's higher education cost. So the federal government comes in and says, as they did in many ways in home ownership, it says, okay, we will guarantee these loans or guarantee you a minimum loss. Um, and, and so the federal government comes in and this enables, allows, or incentivizes financial institutions to come in um, and to lend to the borrower. Now, um, that increases the cost of really of the loan when you have the financial institutions come in. Um, and and we, we see in the late 80s and, and 90s, there are studies which are done by both administrations, uh, the Bush administration in the 80s, Clinton administration in the early 90s, which demonstrate that if we're going to have a loan program, 
the most efficient and cheapest loan product is actually a direct lending product. You remove the remove the financial sector uh, as the middleman, or, or even almost even as a servicer, and let's lend directly to the student. It's more clear cut. It's more transparent. Uh, there's less skimming off the top. Uh, the problem with that was that um, while originally financial institutions were quite skittish about about um, about lending, um, once they started lending and started getting basically the subsidies uh, and realized how lucrative a business it was, they re- remained and wanted to remain involved and, and, and grow its market share. But the place that you see this kind of private parasitic response most vividly is probably the payday loan industry. Um, there was no such thing as payday loans um, in the in the 1950s, 60s, uh, and 70s. Um, yes, you know, if you needed to borrow from friends or family to deal with a with a short term cash um, deficit, you could. Um, and there were probably other options available through banks and um, and more reputable sources. But there was nothing like payday loans. Payday loans are basically short-term loans that are given to people whose paycheck is is presumably going to come soon uh, to get them through the week or the month. And they are extremely broadly used. It's a loan uh, which is designed to bridge one's paycheck every two weeks. And so that loan is due to be paid back in every two weeks. Uh, Very few borrowers... Uh, could pay that loan back in every two weeks. And so you sort of ended up flipping that loan. And when you flip the loan, uh, there are added fees padded on, on top of it. Uh, the average payday uh, borrower uh, would, would flip the loan more than uh, more than over 300 days out of, out of a calendar year. And so you wound up paying far more in fees than you did in the original principal. Uh, and so the rise of the payday loan industry really takes off in the 1990s when we see this sort of in results of this uh, of the of the wage stagnation in this gap, and they're able to evade regulators uh, because uh, there was no up until recently there was no federal regulator of, of payday lending or the, of the industry. Uh, these were largely regulated at the state level, uh, and now states had various states had usury laws and usury caps, which uh, and even the state of Arkansas didn't simply have a usury law, but had codified in their constitution, right? Uh, this sort of anti-usury sort of provision. Yet and still, payday loans were still pervasive in Arkansas. How are they able to do it? Uh, they were able to do it in many ways, primarily often by saying that this is, usury really directly targets uh, interest rates. And what the lender would often argue is that this is not an interest rate. This is a, this is a fee. And it's just slightly different than interest rate. And so, and so with that, that sort of um, rhetorical sort of sleight of hand, uh, they're able to sort of evade uh, sort of uh, regulators. Uh, and another way they're able to evade regulators is by the, the massive influence uh, and lobbying of, of payday lenders at the state level. And I often say this to, to my students that um, so much of the influence of money really happens at the state at state levels where there's far less transparency and, and media attention. We all know some of what's going on at the federal level in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Very few of us know what happens in our in our state houses. And this is where we're able to have great influence. This has been a lightly regulated sector, in part because it was seen as sort of peripheral and in part because, um, the, you know, people, even people who are in the regulatory realm, 
you know, didn't really do the math to think through, well, how big is the interest rate on these loans if, you know, if you have to pay, say, 10% uh, for a two-day loan? Uh, it turns out <laughs> on an annualized basis, that's really, really high. So I think we're seeing more recognition of the problem. Um, and there has been some efforts to try to reform the industry. Perhaps the biggest story with regard to regulation of these kind of parasitic financial practices is the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, that was part of the 2010 Financial Reform Act and is associated, of course, with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who came up with the idea while a law professor at Harvard University. But is, as everyone who follows American politics knows, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has been the subject of withering and ongoing attacks and has not been able to operate on, on the scale that um, it should. And perhaps more important, the payday lending industry is really a bottom feeding industry that has to be regulated on a localized basis. And it hasn't really been. So payday loans are kind of the, they're, they're the kind of, um, canary in the coal mine, if you will, that signals just how bad things have gotten, right? If, if you have, uh, literally, you know, millions of people each year relying on short-term loans with exorbitant um, and really unconscionable interest rates to get by. There's something wrong with your system of economic security itself. The American dream has meant many things over the generations, but the, the core to it since the um, Second World War has been the possibility of affluence, the idea that each generation can achieve a level of affluence that was greater than that of the previous generation. And obviously, that was what Americans pretty much of all classes and races experienced in the 1950s and 60s. Is there a way in which that can ever, in your opinion, be recaptured? And can it be recaptured through public policy changes? Um, or can it only be recaptured um, through some... Uh, I mean, by which I mean sort of, you know, tinkering with the regulatory system, or can it only be recaptured by some fundamental restructuring of the economy? Bring back the virtue of taxation. So use use taxation as a redistributive mechanism to compensate for all of these other things. Yes, um, a, more, a more robust regulatory state. And, and by comparison, uh, the U.S. regulatory state is – is far less muscular than you have in the EU, even the UK, um, if less muscular than you have in Canada. And so I, I don't think it would cost the US much to have a more robust regulatory system, greater consumer protections, because globally, the global competitors that you're looking at have, have again, have much more, have this architecture already erected and, and structured. And so it's not as if, you're going to to be out distancing them in, in, in that capacity. We as a society can put in place basic protections. There is no reason, in theory, we can't have a universal health insurance system, a system of paid leave, a better unemployment benefit system, and a commitment that every child who wants to go to college and get a degree uh, should be able to without taking on onerous debt. Those are choices we make as a society through our democracy, and the great risk shift uh, reflects choices that our leaders have made that have turned away from common protection. We need to revive uh, the, the spirit of shared risk, and we need to rebuild the system of social protection uh, that, um, that has been crumbling on a foundation that is suited to the 21st century. 
Ever since James Truslow Adams first wrote about the American dream in 1931, people have punned that it's become a nightmare. But there was a real inflection point in the last decades of the 20th century, as the Cold War boom slowed. Just as elsewhere in what we used to call the first world, inequality of wealth has increased, and by most measures, social mobility slowed. From a global perspective, the opening of China and the economic development of countries like India has increased the world's labour supply, creating downward pressure on wages, especially in the manufacturing sector. But there is a specifically American dimension to this as well, isn't there always? A retreat from levels of social insurance and collective risk that in the post-war boom years were taken for granted. It turns out that realising the American dream requires the government and not just hardy individualism. Who'd have thought? You've been listening to The Last Best Hope. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>